0: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarin Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth.
1: Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirby Rosblock. And today we are so fortunate to have Dr. Kevin Fleming with us to talk more about the neuroscience of the families that we work with, family offices, families of wealth. And so I'm really thrilled to jump into this topic today because it is so incredibly interesting, fascinating, but it also might give us some keys to some of the secrets, some of the hidden challenges that are just below the surface that we just don't understand what's going on in our brains when we're dealing with sort of the complexities of wealth and families and family offices. So Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tamara. This is fun. Appreciate it.
1: Well, let's, let's understand more about you, you and how you got to doing this work and sort of your background. Because I think for many neuroscience and neural leadership coaching and the complexities of working with families, maybe this is a new sort of area that isn't as familiar.
0: Yeah, I think you're Right. And and we do live in a, a world where pretty much anything on Google right now is brain this, brain that. Uh, neuroscience is really popular. And with that, of course, you get um, some really great discoveries and insights and innovations, and you got to watch it. You get a lot of shadow stuff. You get a lot of half-truths. You get a lot of uh, pseudo-neuroscience, as I like to call it. So uh, Gray Matters is really formed as a really integral space between what I would say is uh the psychotherapy psychology clinical psych pathology kind of world uh dr fraser crane shrinks of the world kind of thing and over here the more pumpy up tony robbins coachy motivational kind of part of the business they both have their place in their world right in our world um sometimes as we all know uh not just in family offices but our own families in our own world we've got over here some clinical problems pathologies issues people's personality disorders things like that a lot of these people actually get rewarded more and more the more they work up the ladder in corporate america we all see that um certain narcissistic and sociopathy type traits and so success comes at a cost and so to actually take away any part of my background that was a, you know a phd neuropsy guy would be st- would be foolish. You need to have some conceptualization skills of when you're working with dysfunction and dysregularity and, and error and problem, you know, problem behavior. Over here in the coaching side, you also have to have engagement, the ability to be a little more positive, focused and solution oriented, of course. But what the coaches in my world, have, or, or my feelings have done is they've removed uh, a lot of sophistication and nuance around what actually is human nature. And with that, the brain and what comes along with how decision making actually works—you um, can't just motivate yourself to deal with crazy every day. <laughs> uh, you, you—I mean, it helps you get up. It's a part of a—it's a necessary but not sufficient condition to doing things good. Is you know having energy, motivation, and a positive hope and belief. Yes, I'm sign me up. I'm all for those things. However, and you know this, Tamara, in our work. If we just walked into our clients and said, "Hey, buck up, little camper! You got you need a few more, uh, you know, positive." No, I mean the 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 depth and breadth, especially in family office work, of complexities, of cost benefit ratios, and the high stakes of dollars and the and the pathology over here in certain types of family systems, that comes at a cost, and it come and it's very delicate and fragile with a lot of systems families that we work with to kind of, um, either way, you're going to miss them. If you're over here and you pathologize them too much, you're going to be, they're like, hey, I don't want to be diagnosed by you. Or if you're over here and you're just minimizing them and tell them to put a smile on their face, you're going to minimize, you're going to miss them there too. Grey Matters International was formed as a company uh, to really split that space, right? To bring the best of uh, clinical neuroscience as well as really engaging, helpful solution-based concierge come to you kind of way of doing work like a coach. Um, and so it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a leading edge company I created about 15 years ago now, wow, time flies, um, that is really using a lot of uh, innovative neurotechnologies, new neuroscience to help accelerate outcomes. So you're not bitching and moaning in psychotherapy or, or having every type of business consultant in your office. Uh, and nothing, you know, nothing's changing. You know, I love getting the phone calls when people find me and then they say, "We've done this, we've done this, we've done this," and I they just list off every type of family retreat they've been on, every type of mm-hmm. dollar spent for this, and they're and they're in that realm of hopelessness. They're like, "Nothing's going to change. This is the this is why we're in dire straits." Those are my clients, um, and because I that's kind of where my uh, beginning begins, you know, in terms of what we do.
1: You made a conscious decision. You said, "I'm good with leaving my sort of clinical practice in the back rearview mirror, and i'm I'm moving on and and it sounds like you know Gray Matters International is this sort of hybrid of sort of bringing some of that clinical intervention into the consulting realm into the co- coaching realm. Talk to us more yeah. about what that looks like, so give. Give some of our viewers, listeners, an understanding of what it was like to be, you know, working day in and day out. And a sort of therapeutic, maybe psychiatric, yeah. psychology kind of vein versus what, what it looks like now. Can you help us with that?
0: Yeah, that, yeah, it's a good question because there's a very <laughs> clear train track switch that I had to pull and it's kind of an embarrassing story, but it's a fun one if we just kind of can giggle at this one a little bit, all of us. Um, I, it actually, the, the the dawn of my my company kind of came to me through a very embarrassing moment in psychotherapy uh, years ago when I was, like you alluded to, doing 13, 14 people a day uh, in a burnout land myself at that time um, and, and hanging on by a thread, by showing care and compassion with every type of part of me that I could do. Um, but the brain is a very tricky kind of self-deceptive organ. It can certainly uh, make you feel like you're doing certain things in a connectable way when you're far from it. Mm. And I had one of those days where I was the last person coming in and I was in a semi-conscious state. I pretty much believe, um, doing the, "Mm, yes. Wow. Okay. uh Uh-huh. Interesting. And I was getting through the, through the meeting. But I was, I should have canceled it. I was beat up. I was beat up that day. um, And I was kind of winging it. And, um, and at the end of it, this, this client of mine, this gal says to me, Dr. Fleming, that session was brilliant. Thank you. And I stopped. And I was remember like, you know, I'm Catholic. So I had this Catholic guilt complex. that kind of came over me and I was like, oh shit, you know, do I take that compliment and run? So they have no idea or do I Do I begin a whole nother level of a dialogue with really radical honesty? And I just thought I'm going to go for it. And I turned to her and I said, listen, let's get our benchmark straight. Um, Albert Einstein, that that's brilliant. Let's put him over here. Okay. That's brilliance incarnate. What you experienced could, could have some components of something that's very interesting and engaging, but it's not brilliant. I'll tell you why I found myself, falling asleep a couple of times. This dialogue was pretty difficult. I was, it was a little disinteresting at times. Um, and I found myself going an automatic pilot and these are not very flattering things to tell you, but I, I think we need to kind of start there. And not only are you not paying me, I'm going to take my checkbook out and I'm going to give you a check back for the hour you lost. And all of a sudden there was this tear that was coming down her eye and I was like, Oh no, you know, I, I, I went too far. And, um, And then she said, no, you know, it just hit me. I go, what? She says, I'm this dishonest with men all the time, and I don't even know it. I go, what do you mean? She said, I compliment them before I really feel what I really am feeling. And I go, wow. So let me get this straight. You call this brilliant. I unplug the brilliant machine. I call myself highly incompetent. You have a tear, and then the tear leads to this level of realization with you and I. She says, yes. I said, well, I'd love to speak more like this, but I got a, you know, probably a state board over there that would not like me to doing this all the time. Uh, And there'll be clients where this is not the proper way to talk. Are you wanting to kind of, you know, go create a whole nother way of speaking and dialogue? And she's like, yes, this is, nobody speaks to me this way, you know? Um, And so that was kind of like a very big, I remember when she left and I said, I gotta make a chance, I gotta make a choice. i got to make a choice. Do you stay in a safe, kind of innocuous, uh, self-indulgent space where people will call you brilliant even if you're not? Or do you remove yourself from there? Get into the high stakes arena where, you know, if you're working with an F- NFL guy or a Hollywood guy or a CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, com- they're gonna look at you and say, I don't give a shit if you're brilliant or not. I got this problem, this has to stop. And we gotta get this stuff finally working that's what I realized I do better. I was working better in that kind of realm where people wanted that speak and they wanted top-notch science and tools and technologies to actually make that happen because otherwise you wouldn't have a reputation or a business if you couldn't do that. And so Gray Matters really kind of I took the leap. I left what I was trained in for years, years ago and created Gray Matters and became a really niche guy for family offices uh, amongst other distinctive clients who have really sticky situations, behavior change problems, mental health issues, all types of stuff, burnout, stress-related disorders, um, conflicts in their in their team. And we kind of roll up our sleeves and say, let's get finally to work.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I am so grateful for that story because I think it's a perfect catalyst for some of the questions I have for you next. Um, you know, you were brutally honest, right? So you were super frank. <laughs> super authentic. Um, and in that moment, you realized that you called her bluff, right? That she wasn't authentic with you. She was just giving you right. her programmatic compliment right back because that's just how she continued to cope, right? That was probably a coping mechanism for her. Um,
0: let's that's just funny.
1: talk about your your the work that you're doing with families through Gray Matters. And Let's talk about the topic of vulnerability because I think you became vulnerable and in that moment, you disarmed her, right? So you all of a sudden changed the way that exchange was going. And I'm sure you're going to tell me what was happening in the brain for you and for her because that unlocked something, right? That shifted the whole period. So help us understand what was the brains doing in that moment, do you think?
0: This is a, this is a, I'm glad you popped into, uh, the vulnerable construct is very big. We know Brené Brown, right? She's got one of the biggest Ted talks on vulnerability and we, there's a reason, right? We all, she's onto something. She's onto something here now flip that coin over and there isn't a seminar somewhere that doesn't have some word of, uh, empowerment inside it. Okay. Empowerment is a big buzzword. Now let's go back to my dialogue. I just shared with you in that example. She was empowered, how? By my disempowerment first, okay? This is the key part that a lot of self-help people are missing. They're running around on stages and publishing these books, talking of empowerment, and nobody's talking about disempowering the right people. okay? Now, that is part of the vulnerability dance. In other words, um I can go around into a family office or to another client and say, "Look it, I can just." Describe the water to them while they drown and call that, say, hey, here's what you gotta do. You know, so you gotta do this, you gotta be more vulnerable. Going to tell someone to be more vulnerable is very different than starting the chain, the causal chain process of leading and dumping and falling into vulnerability, okay? Sometimes a system has to be unplugged first before you get individual vulnerability. That's, that's the other piece that, I, that I'm trying to get to. Now, neurologically, Why was I, for some reason, able to unplug my machine that day? Here's another vulnerable statement. I have no clue. Okay. I think in some reason, some way, grace hit me. I don't know. I had enough of having enough, you know, sick and tired of being sick and tired in the same sort of sham of 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 a psychotherapeutic process. I don't know. I think there's a lot. Nature, nurture, right? We have a lot of, but we know this. Here's what I know. We all have these moments that we shun and turn off the desire to be vulnerable when it pings and comes up in the background and pops up into the water, like in, the, in our brains. And it's a little bubble and we go. And that's why the neurophilosophers call free won't more important than free will. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the inhibition piece uh, of pushing things down is really a big part of 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 this 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 next piece that we need to work on. In other words, self deception is a thing that I work a lot on in great matters. And I'll, when I when I model that level of authenticity and radical honesty, it does help because they give me the power. They project that power onto me. And when I throw all the power off me, whether it's how I dress, how I talk. Uh, The way I come into a company, the way they go, wait a minute, you're Dr. Fleming who's worked with this, 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 this person who's famous. And they're like, but you're talking to me like, like I'm a regular guy in a schoolyard. It's like, yeah, because that's the brain needs to what? Feel safe. Has to come down from its projections. It's got to come down in from the prefrontal area down into the amygdala and fight, flight, free circuitry has to be unplugged. And What I've noticed is most of my client brains are operating in a state of threat, even though they don't have an Uzi in their hand or one gun pointed to their head. Their brains have gone through very, very high stress situations. And usually, not just high stress, they usually have something called a double bind, where they're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. That brain, the brain doesn't like that. Where it does not, and it's called learned helplessness. Marty Seligman has done some great research on this, where they talk about that, where they feel screwed going one way, screwed, screwed to go the other way. Most com, uh, com, uh, families, or companies, or clients who call me have a sense of double bindness. Okay, they have to move something forward, but they have to let something go. They have to gain, they have to lose, they, and these trade offs are very, very difficult to negotiate. And the brain is trying to do what? It's a neuroeconomic organ. It's trying to hold on to both trying to and when it does that sometimes we get these cracks and psychiatric stuff happens addiction issues self-medicating poor sleep um conflict out the wazoo and all of a sudden we're moving coconuts around just to make sure the bleeding kind of right but the brain hasn't been given a, a, a chance to transform from a, a a very high threat state into one that that can go ah Now, before you can talk to somebody about vulnerability, you've got to give the experience of vulnerability to a brain. And that is where the neurotechnology solutions of gray matters comes into the picture is I don't waste time, excuse my French, verbally masturbating about these kinds of things. When I know a culture has a high threat, high fear ratio, I've got to bring that down. Yeah, Because everything else I'll get speak from the neck up. That's just all around, you know, Uh, Yeah, 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 we should do that. Yep, that's right. Yep. Or yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Uh, All those are signs of internal conflict. And too many consultants go in there with their information without matching the brain's level of readiness to even receive it. I think a lot of times we blow over this idea of receptivity of information. Why? Because especially with family offices, things look good on paper. People are successful. The rewards are coming in. Every judgments are being made. But internally, there's a brokenness. Internally, there's some pathology and hurt and pain and wounds. I could keep going, but I think you get the picture.
1: I love it, though. And I it resonates on many levels with me because I also am so intimately connected and working with so many families that are great families, great individuals. Yes. And their people in their family office are top performers and they have good hearts good ethics good morals so we have all the bones right Um, but i do think that somewhere along the way there's been a little bit of brokenness right and almost everybody's everyone's whether you're wealthy or you're not right there is skeletons in everybody's family closets and that That's some of, for some of them is like an anchor that they continue to drag along. And even though they're persevering and trying to manage change, um, those anchors are keeping them from being able to engage authentically, to feel safe, to talk about what they really think, what they really feel, because they're afraid of being shut down. They're afraid of being sort of your, your views don't matter, dismissed. And so again, back to this vulnerability question, um, there, are so, there are so many high stakes of failure. So then it's like, I'm never gonna put myself there. Why would I do that? That's crazy. Um, and yet we know that it's, the only, it's one of the only ways to have real authentic dialogue to help shift, right? Shift these narratives and, and maybe to let go of some of those anchors.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you're exactly right. And You said something very interesting that I want to pull out here a little more and put under the light a bit more is a lot of these people that are stuck in these family systems that have these sort of lack of safety and trust issues, they're not crazy. Uh, like you said, the brain has been logging these sort of events where I did this and this happened. Hmm, that didn't work did it again. This did happen. And so we're always, the brain is remembering these things, right? And what ends up happening is the dissociation kind of thing happens inside these people. And I, I made this illusion when I said, you got to give the experience of Owen before you talk about it. All this trauma, and it is trauma, by the way, I think everybody thinks trauma is capital T, that they have to have some really horrible story. And that's the other thing that's unfair with families with high net worth is they think because they've had some good things or they've had the pleasures of life that they can't talk about trauma. But it's like, oh yeah, yeah, you can, (laughs) because it's a different type and a different form. Uh, And and we have this phrase now in the business, micro traumas, right? Where we're realizing that all these micro traumas over time can have the same effect as big T trauma. Um, And so um, we actually look at brains from people that are growing up in these family systems and they match very similar to a vet coming back from Afghanistan. That's what's very interesting. And it's because of what you're saying, Is like they've chronically kind of been a bumper car hitting a wall. It hasn't worked, bump, up. bump up. And then at some point they do, there's an internal shutting down. Um, and to awaken that you have to kind of, and this is kind of maybe moving into more of the solution side, but to awaken that you kind of have to get the body to not be dissociated anymore and then the brain comes along for a ride. Um, The brain is reorganized from the bottom up, from from the brainstem up. And this is where the trauma pockets or the difficulty is. It's really from the mid part of the brain down to your brainstem is really where the action is. Most consultants who are coming in to talk and reorganize a family system are talking from the top down. This is your CEO of the brain, right? Right? And, And you can see the incredible mismatch right gray matters is kind of coming in as a usb plug-in for the kirby's of the world right <laughs> and are putting that usb plug-in from a neuroscience side to say let's let me do what i need to do on trauma neurophysiology behind the scenes because there's a lot of double bind stuff going on here and these people aren't crazy they need to actually have a brain that feels safe inside their body and that's the first thing and then and the nice thing is we have a technologies where we can do this stuff pretty fast that we don't have to actually spend your whole life in psychotherapy forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that therapy is amazing and I'm never going to say no or sell away to right. it. But at the same time, what I find is really dysfunctional is that um, sometimes a family group has really well intentioned and they put a lot of work and effort into getting together and they are very thoughtful about preparing themselves. and And yet- um, one or more people can hijack it, right? They can just railroad something that's so well conceived, so mm. thoughtful, so intentional. And then for the 80% who are present, who are vulnerable, who are yeah. ready to do the work, they are like, wait a minute, so and so did this again. They hijacked this again. And back to the trauma, it's spiral stuff, you know, going back to this, oh God, this is happening again. So, it's like five steps forward, four and a half steps back. Um and that yo-yoing to your point over time is is a is a vicious cycle that also is intended to keep status quo, right? So that is another thing that I try to reframe to clients is to say, change is hard, but especially it's hard when, you know, Status quo is usually the goal of, of many of these structures. is not necessarily to embrace a lot of change. And so, when when we're seeing this migration of wealth, when we're seeing you know businesses selling, trusts terminating, major transitions happening, all of a sudden that anchor to the status quo is right now. We know it's on wow. like Donkey Kong, and we have to like we have to step into this change mode. So, talk to me more. About well, about it's very this.
0: interesting too. It's very similar to what you said, I Just one comment because on it, it, you got me thinking too. The um, you get outside family businesses, family office work, and you get inside non-family business, uh, public companies, and such. Think about it. It's this idea of um, when when you just said eighty percent of the rooms vulnerable, ready to do their work, and all it takes is one person in a typical. Non emotional family bonded kind of issue. A CEO would come on in and this person's gone, right? Uh, Higher, slow, fire, high fast, right? Was our adage for when I used to do all the corp consulting pieces. Um, it just takes one crazy person, right, to kind of really destroy a team dynamic that. When you're starting, when you deal with family businesses and offices, understandably, you have these sacred cows, you have these very taboo kind of very, you have to be very delicate with these sacramental kind of ways of talking with family members and ways things have been done, traditions. Uh, And things may not be logically right, um, but they are what they are. And you can't be a bull in a china shop. But at the same time, and you and I both share this tension, you also have to call a table at table if it's a table it's a table um and there's a lot of these reality violations at times going on in these family systems where they go well that's just not a table well no i'm pretty sure it is and it, that kind of stuff gets very tricky to how do you get in there and get one uniform consensus of reality that can be like months of work just that in and of itself
1: i'm glad you bring that up because i I do feel and I observe this repeatedly that sometimes families feel like they're just constantly chasing their tail because the telephone is happening. And, but I heard it from this person that this was happening. No, it's not. It's going like this now. Oh, well, I wasn't, no one told me that we're doing it that way, but that's, that doesn't make any sense because we've always done it this way. So it does back to the psychiatric elements, like it does start to make you feel a little stir crazy if um, you know, there isn't clear lines of communication, there isn't level setting around the true facts, not interpretation, just facts, right? And and then making sure that people are educated and really understanding. Like, no, we don't interpret the fact that way. It doesn't work that way. It's just this, right? Um, because again, I think there's this h- higher power that comes that says, no, oh, no, no, I don't really have to play it. But like those rules don't apply to me back to our earlier discussion around boundaries. Um, I can, I can totally like take all of this. I don't have to just take this piece that you tell me is mine. So I do yeah. find it fascinating, right. How that's mm. so part of this creating authentic, safe space for the impacts of vulnerability. I'd love your response to that.
0: Yeah, you used the, that word I love, boundaries. Um, you know, if I take this pen and I drop it, it, always falls. Whether this pen is a high net worth pen or a cheap pen, <laughs> it will fall. It shares a lot. We all share a law of gravity. If If family system boundaries were all equivocal to this or to this type, we'd be fine. But literally we have seen in family systems that they can rewrite rewrite natural law in some way. And things have been done very skewed and very disproportionately from amongst members. And so there isn't just one universal law of gravity, right? Um, That becomes a very challenging thing to kind of rewrite when there's a, another one above me that's rewriting the natural law <laughs> above the one that I'm trying to kind of introduce into a family system. So that's why I go back to that piece about who can we disempower simultaneously while empowering. Now, when I mean that, I'm not trying to say we're trying to throw people off thrones, but my kind of speak that I had with my client earlier that started this interview, I have with the head of, head of families. Okay. I talk to people like that. <laughs> Some people don't like it and I'm not a fit for everybody. But if you cannot speak that to the one who holds the most power, then I got to, I have the saying in my business, I can help you or I can help you have the right problems. You pick.
1: I love it. And I, I do agree with you that um, so much of the power shift only can occur from those who, who really own and have the power. And then, you know, figuring out how we scaffold, right? There's some scaffolding that has to happen oftentimes for the pe- disempowered, those that are like, I have no voice, why should I even show up? No, no. one cares about what I have to say um, to help them understand when and how and the on-ramps and that they don't get like sniper shot as they're just climbing over the wall for the first time and trying to show up and give an idea or express their own Hey, I don't understand this. Like, I don't know why it has to be this way. Um,
0: Yeah.
1: And that's a real, that's a real challenge when, again, those repeated traumas just keep you anchored to like, I'm not going to put myself out there and be exposed.
0: I'm not going to And you know what this is, Kirby? You know what this is too? It it is hit me too, because I talk a lot about this a lot is these family systems come straight up against laws of addiction. And I'm not saying necessarily they have to have someone who's an actual addict and some of them do, okay, I get it. But if you think about the spouse who's married to an addict, they go through this every day, okay? Whether they're a high net worth family or not. Do I stay with somebody who's violating my boundaries as a human being or do I leave? Now, it's a great example because um, there are spouses that I work with in those contexts where I can see the humility and the unbelievable character, and the inner kind of like Rosa Parks strength that they have, that they can do this with grace. And I'll say, you go girl, or boy, whatever, you stay in this situation. You can do it well. Yeah. And there, was, there are those who don't have that internal fortitude. And yeah. someone's got to be an advocate to say, for God's sake, you cannot do this. Yeah. You know, it, You are in the realms and throes of addiction hidden in a very insidious way. And for your self-care and for your actual integrity of self, you can't, you don't have that. That's not good or bad. We all have talents and gifts. Maybe not be one of yours. You have a line there, you crossed it. That's great. And that's why I always do that example. Because when people say, Kevin, do you coach people to stay with addicts or leave them? I go, really depends. I've got great stories where people leave them. I got great stories where they stay with them and they rise above like a wave above it and they don't, they're don't. untouched by it. We have to help these family systems find out where the crazy is. Yeah. Where this fiction dynamic is, because it's usually within, it's like, it's in, It's it's inside layer six or seven of the other four or five you're getting consulted on, <laughs> right? It's It's way in there. And then people have to face the music and see, do they got what it takes to dance with that? Yeah. And if you do? I wanna teach you how to do it well with humility and love. Yeah, love, mercy and forgiveness. And if you can't do that while saving your integrity, yourself and your boundaries, you're out, make a change, do something. Does that make sense?
1: I love that. I think it's super powerful and it's straight up honest. It's the reality. And you know, it's the only way systems often change is by those that are in the system changing themselves, not the system itself having this whole, you know, shuffle, Um, but how the individuals in that system decide to engage and, and recognizing that, that it takes practice and, and there will be mistakes, but if there is a conscious intention and a dedication, particularly by the, those with power to help share power, but also to hear those who feel disempowered. I mean, there is a lot of cathartic you know, reconciliation and things of healing that has to go on for, think, for people to say, you know what, mm. I don't see her or him in that same light anymore. And I am willing to change myself and move on because that is a big problem too, right? The power person might make the yeah. change. But if the, the, the disempowered don't make the change. It doesn't work either. So,
0: exactly.
1: you know, this is, these are big,
0: Big girl, big boy. And and not only that, there's two types of changes. There's superficial change where they do the behavior thing that they were told to do. And there's heart level change, right? And I I know that's a granola kind of foo-foo phrase, but that's, in in, we call it metanoia in the Catholic Church. It's this idea of this sort of a heart level, radical sense, where your sense of the actual essence of something has literally changed perception-wise, sensory-wise. There's no need to bring it up. It's not even in your memory anymore because your heart is converted. That is a radical type of change that I'm always hoping for the grand slam hit for certain clients to get there. Um, that doesn't happen all the time because that's a, an inner grace. It's a, it's a sense of something. Uh, it's a lot of pieces lining up beautifully, but, and that's one of the things, it's another area to get into here a little bit with family offices work is I'll help them figure out when they hire me to come in for these sticky issues I kind of have to see, are they ready for first order change or second order change? Um, First order change is more a little bit more transactional. We're going to decrease the bleeding, (laughs) you know, get the flooding down, you know, and kind of get things more manageable. A lot of times they'll come in with second order change phraseology. We got to radically change our our system or the matriarch will call me and say, I just want peace and these wonderful global phrases, you know, and it's like, "Mm, got it. But you're missing first order tenants, (laughs) you know, like you're missing sort of some of the laws of first order stuff. I'm going to have to move you back here where you have to have a lot of pain and suffering and conflict for good reasons. Then we'll see if we're ready and willing with the hearts to move here. But it's, it's kind of like you have to help them and this. We'll do this with culture assessments to really give them a real pick in the gut. Your speak is over here in second order land, but your readiness is here in first.
1: Yeah. So getting people to that awareness state, talk to us a little bit about some suggestions. What, what can people do on their own? What are things that you like to do with these types of families? And then where does the family office professionals come in?
0: That's a great question. A lot of times the family office professionals, uh, and we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you know, they're, they're, they're doing their, that's happening on my side. They're, they're, they they need some boundary work. So a lot of my coaching for them is about how where their their day ends and some my job begins, um, and how to make proper referrals to me, uh, how to move, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of coaching work for them on how to kind of at least set the proper stage and turn and pivot them over here when they get more of those dialogues with a family member. Um, but setting, but I think setting people up for this kind of work, a lot of times um. I'll use some very interesting neurotechnology and assessments to really see, like I said, where people's pain factors are and resiliency pieces, how fragile an individual or a family system is. You got to really assess for that because if you come in with a a hammer, you could really hurt some sacred stuff. Uh, It's very important to listen very, very succinctly to these folks. Um, But pretty much regardless of where you are on the scale of the stages of change, There is definitely double binds, dissociation, trauma in these families. Um, And you can't help by at least cleaning slate a little bit by getting everybody involved with some neurotech work. Now, what does that mean? I've kind of thrown that around a little bit uh, in this call. Um, There's different ways to look at it. I have a couple, uh, I have some very intensives where where people have actually some real tough clinical issues going on where I'm going to have to fly in, do um, you know, put some electrodes on ahead, do some real kind of safe, non-invasive neural stimulation type methodologies. But a lot of times just low level, low hanging fruit, we can really uh, do some really interesting remote-based neural technologies. I've got clients about four continents right now that are running some of these t- uh, neurotechs uh, via sound that I run them off their phones uh, from my backend that use these very algorithmically uh, uh, adjusted frequencies that provide the inner ear with a sense of quote, safe sound. Now, what does that mean? Um, The inner ear has a muscle called the stapedius and it's connected to your facial cranial nerve and your whole vagal system to the 10th cranial nerve. And it only seems to get innervated. This is a very interesting discovery we had. It only seems to get innervated when middle frequencies, not highs and not lows come into the ear. Now, why is that interesting? If you walk into any of these family meeting offices or facilitations that are very high tense and stressful, guarantee you, you're going to be flooding that room with lows and high frequencies, guarantee you that about 83% of that information that somebody needs to hear is not even getting into the ear, into the brain, because the threat, evolutionarily speaking, is coded by the brain in very low and very high frequencies, which are pretty much all around us every day. You walk into a coffee shop and you're going to hear the grinders and then you're going to hear clicks and clanking of plates. And these are all very lows and high frequencies robbing me and you and our dialogue in a coffee shop of what we're really wanting to talk about. But what do we do in our world? We keep going. We keep trucking. We keep kind of doing our conversations and nobody's really heart level listening. Okay. Now, the the feel good kind of coachy folks are trying to get everybody to kind of, you know, listen more with love and empathy. That's great, but the the hand, the paper that covers rock is the brain. If it's not getting in in the first place, I don't care what kind of self-help program you do, right? So the neurotech part basically clears out where the threat circuitry is go is is, is going on. Now, if you're flooded and you're not getting enough middle frequency, your vagus nerve, which is a very critical nerve, will actually be in what we call a dorsal state, which is a threat state. Now, why is that problematic? Well, <laughs> if it's in a threat state pretty much all day, then you're, it's never actually turning on to a social engagement way. So when you talk about the kinds of talk that you and I have, I need a fully on present Vegas system that's working healthily because there's, this is two critical stake stuff, right? I mean, what we're talking about with these clients, there's a lot at stake. Um, and to kind of half-ass that you just can't do. So I'll pretty much run people off this sort of, uh, interesting algorithmic sound kind of way of getting the brain to rebalance itself. And then, so it's sort of a pre-coaching endeavor. And then we'll bring in uh, some of these, th- then we'll bring in the actual didactic pieces that will come from a strategic assessment and all those other neuropsych tests will, that will run to see where people really are, where their impairment pieces are, and where they need to go and move. Um, but again, a clean slate for a family system through this neurotech is a great way to do it, because what family doesn't have trauma? We all do.
1: We all do, regardless. it's
0: uh, it It's pretty yep.
1: endemic at this point in our culture and Certainly in yeah. our Western culture. So this is so fascinating. I'm I could I think Dr. Glenn, we could talk all day. And I'm just so appreciative yeah. of your wisdom and your insights. Are there like one or two or three sort of ideas that you want to leave our listeners and viewers with today from just all the different interesting things we've talked about from vulnerability and boundaries and safety, neurotech?
0: Yeah. I think I and I've said it to you a few times in this talk reading before it's like. I think one of the first things, I I know it sounds kind of cliche, but to really help people know that one of the, and we, I think this phrase has grown a lot in culture now, gaslighting right? We hear a lot of this now and, and, um, it's been around a while. (laughs) It's not like just a new concept, but we really do feel crazy. A lot of us. And I think that one of the best things to take home is like nine times out of 10, you're not, it's you're, you're, what I want people to understand is that, and this is the hard part is this concept of a trade-off. And I teach my kids this, like we all want certain things. We need maybe very little, um, but the want needs uh, cycle or the circuitry of the brains get hijacked. And the more that we're part of pleasures in the world and and reward systems and things like that. Um, and what happens in family systems like this that I've worked with is things have been reversed. So pleasures and rewards or boundary violations happened at such record paces and speeds that the body in its own internal organ, they didn't get a chance to catch up to understanding the idea of a boundary in their self. It just, it's so foreign to them. Um, and that I think one of the biggest things that I can give people on this talk is just to understand and read about a boundary. One of the guys that I really like, um, is cloud and townsend these are two authors john, uh, john cloud and henry townsend um excuse me john townsend and henry cloud they wrote a book boundaries when to say yes when to say no and if you think about it does that title say it all like if we could teach our clients that right um and i can't tell you how many people whether they're christian not christian atheist agnostic doesn't matter what their belief system is they grab wisdom from this book um it's a a staple of my work because I got to kind of hand these copies out before I even get speaking about anything else. Because if you can't call a table, a table, and we all can't call a table, a table, I'm leaving and going home. (laughs) Like it's just, that's in a boundary learning and understanding boundaries. will get everybody in the room to say, this is what is. And if you can't start there, then don't get me to change your tire while you're driving the car, it doesn't work. You got to stop the effing car, okay? And (laughs) we got to at least start with naming things, naming things as they are and making sure we have them all named right. And I think in this culture that's so fast, everything's nanosecond information, everyone's sending this, sending that, no one gives a a, a shit about definitions, how we define things. Well, if you say this, do we mean really this? Then okay, that proper plan for that, if you define it, that would be this but I'm defining it this way. We're going back to definitions then everybody. We're staying in definitions until we're all calling a table a table.
1: So great. Dr. Fleming, thank you so much for sharing your brilliance today. Again, he's the president and CEO of Gray Matters International, a neural leadership consultancy and coaching firm. And we'll have a lot more where you can contact Dr. Fleming if some of his wisdom might be helpful to you, your family, your family office. Or you as advisors out there. Um, again, this is the Tamron Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirby Rossblock, and it has been an absolute pleasure having you here, Dr. Fleming. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure too.